All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 17th day of October 2017. I want to remind each of you that you can subscribe to my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and you can also subscribe to my friend Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? To do that, go to ChenPicks.com. ChenPicks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For today's show, our sponsors are New Range Gold Corp., Klondike Gold Corp., RN Resources, Novo Resources, and Genesis Metals Corp. I've titled today's show, The American Decline and a 100-Year Gold Discovery. Richard Mayberry and Dr. Quentin Henning, the chairman and president of Novo Resources, are with me today. Richard will talk about massive geopolitical changes currently taking place, especially in Kurdistan, and how that may lead to a new oil war. Richard may also have some comments on evidence of a declining dollar related to those geopolitical changes and how that may well be leading to a new era of high rates of price inflation As a means of preserving our purchasing power, we want to exchange our savings from government-dictated fiat money to honest money like gold and silver. One possible way to actually do better than preserving your purchasing power but actually increasing wealth may be through the ownership of very successful exploration companies. One company that some are suggesting may be on to the most significant new gold discovery in many, many decades is Novo Resources. So I'm really pleased to tell you that right after our first commercial break, Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me to provide a fairly detailed update on Novo's efforts to outline what may well be another gold deposit akin to the great Whitwater's Rand of South Africa. Both interviews with Richard and Quentin were pre-recorded last week. And both are fairly extensive, thus leaving little time this week to talk to my most frequent guest, Michael Oliver. I will be passing along some ideas from Michael in Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks this weekend, but let me pass along very briefly a couple key ideas that Michael left with his subscribers this week. With respect to gold and gold shares, he remains bullish on a macro trend basis. He's looking for gold to scale over $1,350. Once we reach that level, he thinks there will be a massive breakout to the upside. With respect to the gold shares, GDX in particular, he's looking for a price of over $26, which he says should then start uh, a much higher move to the upside for the gold shares. Now, with respect to the S&P 500, Michael had already issued a sell in his letter a couple of months ago. 
but he turned decidedly more bearish this past weekend, much more aggressively on the sell side. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Quentin Henning of Novo Resources will update us on what is the most exciting gold exploration story I have ever covered in many, many years. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Quentin Henning. Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning. He is the chairman and president of Novo Resources, which has been my number one pick in my newsletter and my number one personal holding uh, for some years, for quite a few years, actually, last three or four years. Novo Resources trades in Toronto under the symbol NVO. You can buy it in the U.S., as I have under the symbol NSRPF. Approximately 144 million shares outstanding, and it's traded in the range in U.S. dollars between $5 and $7, uh, starting about... About October, early October, uh, recently at around six dollars in U.S. money, giving it a market cap of around eight hundred and sixty-four million dollars. One thing I would like to say before I say hello to Dr. Henning is that he is an out-of-the-box thinking geoscientist who, when conventional wisdom doesn't make sense, he has the intestinal fortitude to respectfully challenge it, and that is exactly what he has done with regard to the long-held views by geologists about how the famous Whitwaters Rand gold deposit of South Africa was formed. About thirty-five to forty percent of all the gold ever mined in the history of man came from the Whitwaters Rand of South Africa, but conventional views as to how so much gold could be deposited there didn't make sense to Quentin. And about 13 years ago, Quentin not only explained why that didn't make sense, but he came up with his own ideas, uh, his own hypothesis about how it could have, how maybe there could be an explanation for why there was so much gold deposited in a relatively small part of the globe. In studying rocks from the Whitwaters Rand deposit, he noticed that gold was often 
often associated with carbon material in what has been referred to as carbon leaders. From that, he surmised that early in the Earth's history, before oxygen was formed, the chemistry of the oceans was laden with gold and other minerals that would begin to precipitate out of ocean water as ocean water chemistry began to change with the creation of early plant life and photosynthesis. This, he theorized, may explain how so much gold could have been deposited in the wits and possibly in other areas of the Earth's crust, and the right conditions for that to happen, he theorized, would be that the rocks had to be of a very old age, somewhere between 2.7 and 2.9 billion years, thereabouts, uh, when oxygen was being formed in the Earth's uh, in the Earth's history. And he looked for a large, shallow marine basin in a relatively low energy environment. Well, having worked as a geologist for Newmont Mining, Quinton had the opportunity to scour the globe to look for that, that kind of environment. And after many years of thinking about this and searching around the, around the world, uh, the place on Earth that he felt would most likely host another Whitwaters Rand deposit, should it exist, would be in the Pilbara Basin in northwestern Australia, exactly because it had the right age of the rocks uh, and uh, during that time of photosynthesis when it began to be formed in, in the U.S., when oxygen started to be formed, and because of its very large, shallow, low-energy marine environment. There are apparently other scientists who are trying to take some credit for what may be the most significant gold deposit discovery in decades, which of course remains to be proven. But whatever the outcome, it is Dr. Henning and Dr. Henning alone, as far as I know, who owns the precipitation theory for gold deposit, uh, for the gold depositions in the Whitwaters Rand, and hopefully also, because I own the shares of Novo, in the Pilbara Basin of Australia. More and more Dr. Henning's theories are beginning to be paid attention to, even by naysayer geologists, and one significant and profitable gold mining company, namely Kirkland Lake Gold, has invested a large amount of money in Novo, becoming its largest shareholder. In its quarterly report put out by Kirkland Lake last week, the company said the following about their investment in Novo Resources, and I quote, We are very enthused about our recent strategic investment in Novo Resources Corp., with our investment having already increased substantially in value. Based on our assessment, we believe the Carantha area of Western Australia has the potential to become the world's next great gold camp, and we are looking forward to the results of the extensive drilling programs which Novo is currently undertaking in the area, end of quote. Well, it is this great growing belief in uh, Dr. Henning's theories as well as uh, exploration results that are beginning to bear, uh, those those results are beginning to bear out his theories uh, that has led Novo's shares from around 70 cents in early July and U.S. money to around seven, as high as $7 earlier this month. With so much excitement surrounding Novo Resources and the discovery your company is making, uh, Quentin, thank you so much for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Jay. Before we get started, I should mention to those of you uh, who would like to understand more about the chemistry and geology uh, behind Dr. Henning's theories, there are several research papers hosted at Novo's website, that's novoresources.com, that you can access, and, and they will go far in explaining uh, you know, the legitimacy of, of the theories that Dr. Henning and Novo Resources are uh, basing their programs and their exploration efforts on. Dr. Henning, having talked about what took you uh, to northwestern Australia in the hunt for another possible what Waters ran in the past on this show on several occasions. I would like today to focus on on the content of your most recent press release dated October 17th. Uh, but before we go there, I would like to emphasize to my listeners that while some other academics may wish to take some 
some credit for what's going on here that is really Dr. Henning's work and Dr. Henning's work alone. But, you know, nobody, even people of the most brilliant minds, always depend on some work that was done earlier. And Dr. Henning, you mentioned that although, you know, this you are really a lone camper in this, in this theory, uh, there were a couple of professors early on in your academic life that got you to start thinking outside the box. Would you care to just maybe briefly mention that? Yeah, sure, Jay. Look, uh, actually, it's a pleasure to be able to talk about it because uh, some of these early ideas, you know, kind of fallen out, you know, in, in history, you know, that people don't recognize them for what they were. But there, there was a, uh, an effort in the late 1980s uh, made by two people, Richard Vilhune and Richard Hutchinson, uh, two very well-known geologists. Richard Vilhune was with Goldfield. Uh, he was uh, head of exploration there for, for several years and, and is really a, a well-renowned geologist in especially in Africa. Uh, Richard Hutchinson was my professor at the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, Richard Hutchinson uh, is known as kind of the father of syngenetic ore deposits. He he was one of the first people to work on VMS systems and, and such back in the 1960s. And he recognized, you know, this the role that uh, deposits uh, forming in, say, seawater that, that were basically formed at the time sedimentation was being laid down, you know, how important these are in geology. Uh, prior to that, people really had no understanding of, of syngenetic ore deposits, all right? So, um, in the late 1980s, uh, both Richards uh, published a paper, I believe it was 1988, that hypothesized that the, the gold in the Vitvatersman Basin originated uh, from an exhalative deposit. This would be uh, called a, a, a deposit that was forming from hot fluids that were percolating up through the ground, mm-hmm. a structural zone, call it, you know, along the margin of the basin, and then they issued out, you know, these basically vented into the ocean, uh, precipitating uh, a layer of, of gold-bearing pyrite. And at that pyrite, uh, gold-bearing pyrite was then subsequently eroded and, and worked into the conglomerates to form, you know, we'll call it a syngenetic deposit, all right? So this was really the first foundation for anybody hypothesizing a syngenetic origin for these deposits. Now, um, in 1993, I believe it was, late 93, I was finishing my master's at the School of Mines, and, and Dick Hutchinson asked me to uh, work on a PhD. He contacted uh, Richard, Richard Lehune, who was still at Goldfields, and uh, Richard provided uh, quite a few samples from various mines in the Witwatersrand Basin. They were all very interesting samples, you know, taken in context. They were uh, from very special locations, uh, carbon leader, uh, you know, conglomerates that were had eroded down through the carbon leader, uh, the Ventersdorf contact reef. Anyway, long story short, they were. it was a, an amazing set of samples that really told a geologic story. Uh, I started working on these samples uh, as in preparation for a PhD and uh, you know, unfortunately, Goldfields did not come through with funding at that time, so I had to park the, the work. But I got a, a far enough along with the study to come up with some rather interesting discoveries. One of them was the recognition that the, the carbon structures, these are um, structures in carbon that's been preserved in carbon leader type material. Carbon leader is a thin seam. It looks like coal. It's a, a seam that's anywhere from, say, a millimeter up to a few centimeters thick, and it is absolutely loaded with gold. The carbon leader occurs often occurs between uh, a foot wall sandstone and a hanging wall sandstone. In other words, there's sandstone above and below it. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's been a mystery. Like, how on earth do you form a sheet-like carbon seam that's full of gold over tens of square kilometers? You know, that's <laughs> very, very odd. Uh, some people have hypothesized this is kind of an oil seep, like it's it's oil that's been injected along a, a planter fracture, you know, through this bed, bedding and stuff. And it's like, that doesn't make sense because if you look at the carbon leader, it always fits a certain geologic context. In other words, it, it fits 
it, it fits in the deposition of the sediment. Uh, it doesn't transect beds. It, it's basically parallel to the beds, both below it and above it. And on a local scale, you can actually see structure in this thing. You know, you can see where it gets thicker and thinner, and there might be a few occasional pebbles that are embedded in it, and it was quite soft when it was formed because the pebbles actually dent. They, they uh, bend the... Uh, mm-hmm the carbon material, you know, or the material that the pebble impacted. So I came to the conclusion, no way. This uh, this carbon leader was indeed deposited at an early time. And that the, the whole, um, you know, this whole notion that uh, that it, it might be a fossil remain could be true. Now, there was mm-hmm. a guy named Ter Hallbauer in the late 70s or early 80s who studied this. He picked apart some carbon leader and took some amazing photographs of this material and showed that it was, in his view, a uh, microbial uh, fossil remains. All right. So now at that time, you must understand geologists around the world had this view that there was no significant life on Earth at this time. So mm-hmm. most people dismiss this as absolute rubbish. I came to the conclusion it was true. And what's more interesting is that I found in some of the conglomeratic ores that I, I studied, you know, these samples that I had received, uh, there were pieces of carbon uh, these were not just little little dots of carbon, like referred to as flyspeck carbon, but they were actually uh, what appeared to be chunks of carbon leader material that were, were basically physically de- disaggregating, like they were being broken up. They were detrital class in the conglomerate. I came to the conclusion based on this that the, the gold, the source of the gold is actually the carbon leader. It was a precipitation event, and that formed the carbon leader, the gold-rich seam. And then the, the sea level, as it rose and fell, uh, occasionally would rework this along the shoreline, the, the streams would start cutting down through it and you would form conglomeratic ores and then especially in this near near shore environment where the waves work back and forth across this mm-hmm. material okay so so fast forward how do you how do you explain gold in a carbon scene well uh, I started doing some work with some other researchers uh, when I got to Newmont and we found that the the carbon uh, in some of the samples that we we studied was indeed kerogen uh, this the kerogen means it's the, the carbonaceous material that's left behind after the the material has been cooked you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the, you know, if you baked a cake too long, it would be the carbon that's left in the pan after you, mm-hmm. you cook, you burnt mm-hmm. it. Okay. Uh, so it, what that confirmed is that it was indeed biogenic. It was indeed a, a fossil remain of some sort. Mm-hmm. And uh, the notion is then that gold, the gold was precipitated by this uh, this biomass early on during sedimentation. Okay. So the, the idea uh, that I came up with was that oxygen, uh, these were photosynthetic organisms, the, the top, uh, you know, bio biomass or the top bacteria on this mat was uh, probably cyanobacteria and it was kicking off oxygen and oxygen has a way of breaking down gold complexes causing gold to precipitate mm-hmm. right so the idea is that this triggered a precipitation event gold was concentrated on this this uh, biomass as it was this this mat if, as it was uh, forming and you know as the time tide came in and out in and out in and out over years and years you know uh, this accumulated enough gold to to form this very very rich gold scene hmm. all right well, let's take that idea over to the pilbara uh, you know that's the whole impetus for, for going there is uh, let's mm-hmm. find somewhere else where this process might have occurred. And so you have, and you've gone there, and I, I know that one of the questions that's been raised uh, so far is that, uh, you know, you, you haven't really found any of these carbon leaders yet, but I think your explanation for that is that you're still very high up in the system where there would have been more energy and more wave action, I guess, that would have broken everything up. Is that, Do I have that right? Correct. you you got to think of this as a dynamic system, all right? So we're in the shoreline environment where, where wave action was working this material back and forth. We're effectively in a, a relatively high energy reserve 
regime. Now, what that's done is it's concentrated the gold in these conglomerate horizons, you know, and that's that's where we can get our first look here. We, we're drilling and trenching and so forth, and we're going to sort this thing out, hopefully, over the next few months. But, uh, you know, in concept, if the carbon leader type facies are, are out there somewhere, they're going to be down dipped down into the basin in what it w- would have been a quieter environment where they're mm-hmm. still preserved. Mm-hmm. Right. And now let's talk about your drill program that you've got going on now um, that, well, that you will have on uh, shortly anyway. Is it, well, I, as I understand it, you're starting out with these narrow drills, I think three quarter of an inch diameter core drills that are really being used primarily to determine the geometry of these conglomerate beds that host the gold. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit bigger than that, though. It's a, a, We're drilling PQ holes. The diameter of the core that comes out is a, about a little over three and a half inches. Oh, that's what you're drilling now, three and a half inches? Yes. The the, um, the What you call the scout holes? Yes, correct. The scout holes, these core holes, are about three and a half inches uh, in diameter. Okay. And they, they provide us with a very good look at the geology. We can see, you know, as it's a stick of rock, basically, and we can see... Uh, the the conglomerate layers, the uh, bedding, the boundaries between you know uh, layers above and below. So we're we're using this information to prepare for a large diameter drilling, which is 17 and a half inch. That uh, is is designed to give us enough sample material uh, to address the coarse gold issue here. Right. So you got these scout holes, and I understood that you were going to start with a larger diameter drill later on. Uh, yes, to, to, very very soon. Uh, in fact, it's it's showing up at site on on Saturday afternoon. What is the size of those? Uh, what's the diameter? diameter of those holes? The large diameter hole, uh, holes are 17 and a half inch, which is Whoa. roughly 44 centimeters. So essentially you're picking up bulk samples that way. Correct. That's the idea is to collect bulk samples, uh, the material of which we can process and, and determine grade. Now, you did one bulk sample so far, and it was remarkable. It, uh, it showed, you know, I guess it was a little over two ounces per ton. About 80 or 84 percent of that was coarse gold, these nuggets and, and coarse gold. But a fair amount of it was fine gold as well. Uh, you know, as I recall, something more than seven grams per ton, which is a pretty darn rich gold deposit by today's standards. And I'm, I'm wondering why you might not be assaying. Are you assaying this three and a half inch diameter drill core for fine gold, if not if not the nuggets? We will be doing some uh, test work on the core. Uh, it, it'll be, it, I'm not going to call it systematic. It'll be where we, we see interesting intervals that might uh, might have a a fine grade gold component. We are not going to necessarily report those for grade purposes. The, the whole purpose of drilling the large diameter holes is to try to get a large enough, i.e. representative enough sample for grade. Uh, but we will learn some very important information uh, out of the, the large diameter drilling too in regards to the fine grain component. As we put the samples through the ore sorter, the machine actually picks out rock par- particles that have gold in them, All right, so it sees visible gold, it shunts those particles off into one bin. The other bin uh, collects the waste material, and which is where the finer grain gold would be. And much like the results we got back in August, you know, people can go to that news release and read. Uh, we will have an idea of how much coarse gold and how much fine grain gold there is in these samples. Um, in your press release, there was a very interesting couple of sentences there in the fourth paragraph down, and I quote, it says, a slight distinction is made between a lower sequence in the conglomerate that is nearly devoid of quartz and an upper sequence that bears up to 10% rounded white quartz class. Novel personnel have noted at surface that while the entire conglomerate sequence has been subject to metal detecting activity, most gold appears to be derived from the lower mafic classed rich conglomerate sequence. And and when I read that, Quentin, I, I took it 
it to mean that the lower portions of the conglomerate were perhaps, more, well, you said they were more mafic-like makeup, was, was mineralized mostly, if not entirely, by a precipitation event that you theorize about, while the upper portion of the conglomerate, which displays some quartz mineralization, may have, to a limited extent, been mineralized by more traditional erosional activity, perhaps? Do I, am I reading too much into that? No, let's pick it apart. Okay, first of all, the okay, the term you said mafic. It's it's actually pronounced mafic. Yeah. And what that that is is it means the clasts in that conglomerate are dominantly mafic igneous rocks. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're salt and and uh, dolerite and gabbro and things like this. We don't see much quartz in that particular horizon. Like there's maybe an occasional pebble or two of quartz. Uh, up section from that, the conglomerates start taking on considerably more quartz, maybe 10% quartz, and they're very distinct. Out in the field, you can see white quartz cobbles scattered across the ground. Mm-hmm. What all I'm, There's really nothing to read into the comment other than what we see right now is that most of the metal detecting activity that people have done is in the, the, the lower unit, which is the mafic-rich uh, unit, versus the, the quartz cobble-rich unit. Okay, so it's just a way, it's just an observation. We, dis, we can distinguish that most of the gold appears to be in the lower section of the conglomerate. It's not to say there's none in the upper conglomerate. There are occasional uh, dig holes where people have dug up nuggets, but I would say the bulk of them, you know, 90% are down in the, the mafic Ridge conglomerate. You've learned that you're, that these conglomerates are, are quite substantial in their thickness. Uh, would you talk about what your press release revealed in that regard? Yeah, look, uh, what we've learned is the, the conglomerate horizon is very sheet-like and continuous. Uh, it ranges from about 4 to uh, 14 or 15 meters thick in the drilling that we've done so far. Uh, the distribution of the two conglomerates, I would say, is roughly 50-50, but, uh, you know, in any given hole, you might see as much as 80% of one type and 20 of the other, okay? It varies from place to place, but I would say overall, uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, a roughly 50-50 mafic conglomerate versus quartz cobble bearing conglomerate in each of these drill holes. So, it's very encouraging. It's it's telling us that the thing is, is sheet-like. It was probably deposited in a shallow marine environment, like we've been hypothesizing hypothesizing and you know so far the drilling is supporting this yeah so but but again uh what you're looking at so far would be higher up in the system that is higher closer to the shoreline i guess right that's right we're still in the shoreline environment uh you know we did see a chunk of uh what is probably a fossil stromatolite in one of the the drill holes i think i have a picture of it in that news release that people mm-hmm. can view uh you know it's just it's colored a, a, a little taste of uh, information was gleaned here, but, you know, there's lots, lots more to do. Quinton, as I understand it, the bulk sample that you took and reported on back in August would have been taken then from that lower uh, portion of the conglomerate, right? And and which would probably grade higher than the more, uh, than the upper levels of the uh, uh, of the conglomerate, although, of course, this is just one bulk sample. Correct. Yeah, it is one bulk sample at the time. Uh, you know, our understanding was much less than it is today. Uh, we're learning every day. And, you know, to put it in context, I would say that first bulk sample came from kind of the upper to top part of the mafic conglomerate, so it's the upper or top part of the lower of the two conglomerates, mm-hmm. just just the way it worked out. All right, so now I believe you are you were drilling, you're doing these scout drill holes on 50-meter sections. Do I have that right? And, and then will the broader, the wider drill uh, drill intercepts be at the same places? Will they be drilled at 50-meter centers as well? Uh, yeah, we're, we're basically doing a 50-meter grid. 
so it, it'll think of it like a you know looking down on it from a bird's eye view. You'll see holes in 50 meter squares. And when might we start to get some assays from that? I know you you have to be cautious because you don't want to promise something before you can deliver. And there's a lot of a lot of things that are changing. And I understand that your lab that will be assaying these have had to make some adjustments for you as well. But when do you expect that we might start hearing uh, and seeing some assays that that might come out of uh, out of this exploration program? No, that's a good question. I want to set everybody's expectations. So the large diameter drill shows up on uh, Saturday. We'll probably start drilling it on Sunday. The first samples from that drill will hit Negrom Laboratory in Perth. Uh, price, let's see, today is the 20th, probably sometime in early November. Uh, give it two months, two months. Nagram's uh, setting up their laboratory right now to handle our samples. Uh, so I would say early next year we'll see samples from the drilling. Uh, trenching about the same. We did take about 20 or 30 trench samples here recently. Uh, those are being shipped uh, as well, and again, it'll be early early next year. Let's call it. We can we look forward to any kind of announcements on an ongoing basis before assays come out? Yeah, what we plan on doing in the meantime is issuing news releases uh, describing the geology, what we're seeing on the ground, on a routine basis. That way, people can you know keep engaged and uh, understand how this project's developing. Quinton, with respect to Beaton's Creek, I mean, so much excitement 350 kilometers west at Purdy's Reward and Comet Well. But what can you tell us about Beaton's Creek? Because the last I talked to you, you were planning, the company was planning to do a pre-feasibility study. Is that still in the works? Yeah, look, uh, Jay, we we have, uh, okay, so in order to do the pre-feasibility study, we have to revise our resource, and we are working on that presently. Um, we found out our QP from uh, the company we hired uh, had left the company uh without telling us back in July. And so we had to find a new QP, which kind of put us off track for a bit. Uh, we found a new QP based in Perth, uh, and he's gone up to site in, in late September. He's working on the resource revision now. You know, I'd say we're about a month behind on that, but we are still working towards the goal of revising the resource and ultimately doing economic study. Yeah, because before all of this excitement uh, out there at yeah. Pretty's Reward, I mean, this was this was something I was looking forward to. It certainly doesn't carry the excitement that you've got yeah. with the newest discovery, but it looks like something that, that might be feasible and might make some sense and might make some money. I'm not going to pretend. Our, our bandwidth has been uh, exceeded at times recently. It's been a- <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it has, Quentin. I, I, I thank you so much. It makes it all the more, I'm all the more grateful for you taking the time to speak with me today, given, uh, g- given the pressure that you're under right now. Uh, how well-funded are you to carry out? This is a very expensive exploration program that you're doing now with these wide drill holes uh, with, you know, closely spaced and so forth. But are you well-funded enough to, with with Kirkland Lake coming in, I suppose you're okay, at least for the foreseeable future? We are. Look, we're in very good position. That placement did us a world of good. We have about $72 million in the bank. Uh, we're starting to spend, we'll probably spend around a million and a half to $2 million per month uh, in the for the foreseeable future as we advance the Carartha project and our other uh, assets. Basically, that's the company burn rate. Uh, So we have a lot of runway. We have a lot of runway. We can keep keep our head down. We can do the work we need to do. It's, It's a delight to be able to focus on geology and not worry about going around and raising money. Boy, I guess I can understand that because I've known you over the years when that wasn't the case uh, and, and when I know that uh, it was pretty difficult at times. But boy, you held in there, Quentin, and, and just stuck with your principles, with your ideas, and it seems to be paying off now. I mean, uh, time will tell, I guess, but boy, we're, we'll be waiting with bated breath, that's for sure, for uh, for the news to come out. I know many people are. Anything else you'd like to leave us with before we conclude our discussion today? 
Yeah, look, uh, I think uh, what the comment I would make is this. Uh, you know, a lot of what's driven our stock recently is, is, you know, on the speculative side, people are thinking, wow, these guys could be on to, to something truly unique. Yeah. And, yeah. and I firmly believe that. But uh, the important thing is now we let the science catch up with that speculation. We have to do the hard work sure. to collect these samples and assay them and so forth. And that's really our, our goal. You know, a lot of people think that, you know, snap of the fingers, you, you got, you know, you got a billion ounces or something yeah. crazy. This and and I really want to diminish you know that that kind of uh, speculation and try to pull it back towards the science end so that people understand uh, how this is going to develop. That's why I put out news release like the one on Tuesday. Yes, it really informed people on on what what the science is behind this to to drive the future value. Yeah, it was very helpful. I want to thank you so much for that. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm so happy that I got my friend John Kaiser to start looking at this, too. I, he's really digging into it with with a great deal of intensity, and uh, he's very helpful to me as well. Especially, Quentin, I don't want to be bothering you all the time, because I know as far as soon as we finish this, you've got another interview to go to. So I'm going to let you go now, and thank you so much for being with us again. And uh, I do hope, if you have time, that you'll come back and talk to us again in the future. Well, thank you very much, Jay. Always a pleasure. Folks, uh, don't go away, because coming up next, Richard Mabel will be with me to talk about some very important geopolitical events taking shape that are likely to have a profound impact on the price of oil, dollar, gold, and your investments in general. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Rick Mayberry. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Richard Mayberry. Well, he is the uh, publisher of U.S. and World Early Warning Report for Investors. It's an excellent newsletter. It's one that I've been subscribing to for many years now, and it's one of those letters I just wouldn't want to be without. And uh, I would suggest that you should give a give a try to Richard's letter because it is absolutely excellent, as I say. And the place to go to there is earlywarningreport.com, earlywarningreport.com. Dot com. Thanks for joining me again, Richard. Well, it's great to be here, Jay. And incidentally, I was reading your newsletter here uh, just yesterday. I'm really impressed with the, the job you do analyzing uh, these um, these gold and silver stocks. It's really impressive, your charts and uh, your descriptions of the, of the various gold veins and all in the mines. That's really great, and uh, I appreciate that very much. Thank well, you. Well, thank you, Richard. Thank you for your kind remarks. Uh, and folks, um, no, I'm not paying Richard to say that. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, I... In all uh, in all humility, uh, exploration stocks is a very uh, you know covering exploration stocks are high risk, high reward, and when you hit, they can be very very good. Uh, but very often, the the odds are against uh, finding and outlining and delineating a, a deposit that is worthy of being mined and is, and then is economic. And then of course you have these ups and downs in the uh, in the mineral in the you know in the prices for the minerals, and it becomes mm-hmm. uh, you know it's a high risk, high return business. So but work very hard at it and do the best I can, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thank you for your kind words. But I'd like to ask you today uh, to comment a little bit on some of the content of your November letter, which I understand is going to be going to press tomorrow. Now, I'd like to start out by reading a quote from your letter. America is wonderful. I would not want to live anywhere else, but its government is despicable. When Trump calls it a swamp, he's understating, end of quote. Well, before we discuss some more specific issues today, can you talk philosophically about what the framers of our Constitution had in mind for us compared to what Washington, uh, the Washington swamp, is giving us today? Right. Um, the American founders, if you read uh, their um, their various pamphlets and articles and letters from the revolutionary period, you find that uh, they were convinced, as I am convinced, that political power is an inherently evil thing. Political power is the, the legalized privilege of using brute force on people who have not harmed anyone. Only governments have that privilege. And the founders were convinced that no human can have that privilege without being corrupted by it. So they were trying to come up with a government that would be so small and inc- inconsequential that no matter who got control of it, they couldn't do much damage. And that's what the U.S. Constitution and especially the Bill of Rights all about is trying to keep the government in a condition where it exists. It fills the power vacuum, but it can't really do very much. And uh, and so and the, the the government was you know very small and inconsequential up until the Civil War when it started growing like crazy. And then in the 20th century, it really took off. And today, the U.S. government, far from being small and inconsequential, is the most powerful ever seen on Earth. And um, the what a lot of Americans don't understand is that it's so powerful that it's not just the capital of America. It's the capital of a global domain, which is almost the whole world. It meddles in every country on Earth. There's no exception. Everybody is touched by decisions made in Washington, and everybody knows that all roads lead to Washington. If you're going to do anything of much importance in the world, you've got to be looking 
toward Washington and asking yourself, uh, how are they going to take this and what are they going to do to me? Americans don't understand that, but believe me, the rest of the world does. And that's why uh, there are so many millions of people who hate Washington, not just in the United States, but in other countries too. So the, the government that we have there is not the one that is that was established by George Washington and the others back in 1790. It's something that morphed into this gigantic socialist predator um, back in the early part, mostly in the early part of the 1900s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, <clears throat> and that's what we're living with today. This thing is not the American government. It is something that a whole lot of socialists uh, you know, warped into a Frankenstein's monster that has you know, actually almost no resemblance to the original, original plan. Indeed, and uh, George Washington not only uh, envisioned, and he and the other founders envisioned a very small, not very powerful federal government. I mean, you had state governments had uh, enormous powers in those days, but mm-hmm. they didn't uh, anticipate any any foreign involvement as we have now. Washington warned us against entangling alliances in Europe, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've, uh, you know, obviously, as you just noted, we've not heeded that advice at all. And especially, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some changes that seem to be coming around now uh, geopolitically. As you say, there's lots of people around the world hate the American government because of what it does and the trouble it causes around the world and in, in seeking its own power. But um, <clears throat> I'm thinking of the petrodollar. post Bretton Woods, 1971, gold-backed dollar was replaced with the petrodollar in which Kissinger and the Nixon administration made an arrangement with Saudi Arabia to make sure that the dollar continued to have value by requiring all pet- uh, petroleum sales be, be paid for in dollars. That created a, the dollar became uh, ever more powerful and the world's reserve currency. It was a strong currency before that, of course, because of our power in the world. But the petrodollar and oil is so much a part of the geopolitics of our day, isn't it? And very interesting, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the Kurdistan issue that's going, that is really starting to come into focus now in the Middle East, because that is very much about oil. Could you talk a little bit about the Kurds, their history, and what's going on right now in the Middle East that is causing you a great deal of concern that we could actually possibly be facing another oil war? of some significance. Yeah, um, and this is, uh, the outbreak of this is just brand new over the last week or two. Um, I've been writing about Kurdistan since 1991, explaining this situation and, you know, projecting that if it continued going the way it has gone, um, that we would wind up with the Mideast splintering into uh, all sorts of new small countries, and there would be a tremendous amount of warfare that would probably destroy a lot of the uh, oil fields. Um, Again, I've been writing about that since 1991, warning about it, and it looks like in the last few weeks, it has started to break out. Now, you have to go back and look at the Kurds' uh, history a little bit here. Um, Go all the way back to 64 B.C., The uh, Roman general named uh, Pompeius Magnus decided that the Romans uh, should start moving eastward and that they should attack the Arabs in what is now Syria. So um, Pompeius Magnus launched this invasion of Syria against the Arabs, and the war, the so-called war against terrorism that we're in today, is 
still that war <laughs> that was launched more than 2,000 years ago by the Romans. Amazing. And that, the Romans did it before there was any such thing as Christianity and before there was any such thing as Islam. Those came along later. But they started the war in 64 B.C. And then Christianity came up and then Islam came up and it evolved into a war between Christianity and Islam. Um, and the Europeans kept at it and they just kept pounding away at the Islamic world, and um, you come to the colonial period uh, after the Middle Ages, and they're still fighting, and the Europeans now, because uh, they, Europe is where uh, the Industrial Revolution got established very early, they were extremely heavily armed now by that time, and they just swept through the Islamic world, um, massacring people by the hundreds of thousands, and taking over that whole area. Now, that's an area that goes from Morocco on the Atlantic to the Philippines on the Pacific. Wow. And the Europeans took nearly all of that, like, you know, I don't know, 90, 95% of that, killing anybody who resisted. And <clears throat> the real tragedy for this, for America, is that the American founders were, were born in America, and they didn't really have much of an understanding of what was going on over there. And when the European governments referred to the Muslims as pirates, the American founders, as much as I, I admire them, they were brilliant people, but they were human and they made mistakes. And they believed this, that this was piracy going on over yeah. there. They didn't realize that this war went all the way back to... Uh, 64 B.C. Mm. So they jumped into this war on the side of the Europeans, and that was the Barbary Wars. That was the U.S. mistakenly, um, with good intentions, getting into the Europeans' war against the Muslims. So uh, we come up to, you know, the recent times here in, 19, in the 1940s, Franklin Roosevelt uh, renewed that, that uh, alliance with the Europeans and um, began really meddling a lot in the Islamic world, contributing to the chaos that the Europeans had launched all the way back there in 64 B.C. Mm-hmm. The Kurds, well, um, backing up a little bit, the, the Europeans uh, after World War I, they, they took a huge part of the Islamic world and they started dividing it up among themselves and drawing these new countries. And Iraq, for instance, is an artificial country mm-hmm. established by the Europeans. So is Syria, so is Saudi Arabia, and on and on. Uh, these are not countries created by the people who live there. They were created by the governments of Europe, not by the European people who knew nothing about it, but um, by the European governments dividing up all of the, the loot. Um, the group that the Europeans did not give a country to was the Kurds. For some reason, they just decided the Kurds didn't count. And so Kurdistan, where the, the Kurds have lived for 44 centuries, was um, divided into Syria, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and the USSR. Um, in in the, the newsletter next week, there will be a map that will show you this. So the Kurdistan was chopped up like a pie, and pieces of it were given to each of those new countries uh, that, that the Europeans were establishing. And the, the Kurds today are the uh, re- widely regarded as the largest ethnic group without their own nation. And, and they want their own nation. They want to just be left alone, to, you know, live by themselves and do things their way. So we come to uh, 1922, after World War One, and they uh, launch a war against the new governments that the Europeans were created over there, trying to be able to split off and have their own country. 
and that guerrilla war continued until we got to, um, let's say, now, I don't know, about 15, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. they really escalate a lot. After the war between um, the U.S. and Iraq, that first one, the, that, the, the Kurds saw that as an opportunity to split off and um, and make their own country. They uh, they got stabbed in the back by uh, President Bush back then. He encouraged them to rise up against Saddam Hussein, mm-hmm. and they did. And then he did not give them air cover or any other kind of military support. Mm. And they were just massacred. So they don't trust the U.S. government or anybody else for very good reasons. And um, they are still trying to split off and create their own countries. Now, they they did, during this war against ISIS, manage to take um, northern Iraq and turn that into essentially their own country. It has 6% of the total world oil supply. So suddenly the Kurds have both a small country and a whole lot of money. And so they've been buying weapons like crazy, and they're preparing to declare independence, and they have done that. Uh, just about two weeks ago, I think it was, they declared independence, and then they um, uh, immediately, the government of Iraq said, we won't permit that, and they invaded Kurdistan. So there's a war going on as we speak now, brand new war uh, with the, between the Kurds and the Iraqi government. And if the Kurds do get away with, with their independence here, What's terrifying all the governments in the world is that this um, this movement for declarations of independence will spread throughout the Mideast. Governments of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, Jordan, and on and on. These are all governments that are uh, were established by the Europeans. They are the descendants of those European uh, artificial governments set up. And um, those, essentially, those countries that you see when you look at a map, like Saudi Arabia, those are artificial. Those are actually places where a single tribe, which is the Saudi royal family, conquered all the other tribes on the Arabian Peninsula and um, forced them into, with the help of the British, forced them into this um, this country called Saudi Arabia. And that's the case all through the Mideast. Uh, there are, it's actually an area where natural countries are really these small microstates, these little mm-hmm. tribal areas. There, sh- there should be hundreds of separate countries over there. That's the natural condition of that area. There should be hundreds of separate little countries that were forced together by the Europeans for the convenience of the Europeans, mm-hmm. and everybody's afraid now. They're all going to see the Kurds, and they're going to say, well, if the Kurds can do it, so can we. And they'll all start declaring independence, and these uh, governments, as in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and so forth, will try to hang on to the land that the Europeans helped them acquire. So you're going to have, very possibly, a tremendous free-for-all over there. It's just mm. one war after another with these little tribes trying to declare independence. Chaos. So Yes, chaos. Absolute, total chaos is a very real possibility. And Washington and, and every other government in the world, except that of Israel, is trying to stop this. They're trying to keep the, the Kurds from being independent. And who knows where it's going to go, but you can see where it's pointed. Um, the Mideast now uh, has enough weapons in everybody's hands that all of these conquered tribes, these hundreds of conquered tribes, are thinking this is their chance to declare independence and be their own little countries. Um, and the, uh, who, who knows? I mean, it's a, such a 
fluid situation right now. You just don't know where it's going to go. But it has certainly the potential to turn into this free-for-all that will just demolish the Mideast oil fields. And so, Rick, can we, can we sort of predict that the United States will go with the rest of Europe, that it will not that it will not befriend the Kurds, that it will stand up against the Kurds? Is that a safe bet, do you think? It's actually... Um, already happened yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's a very safe bet yeah now, Washington announced that they're going to be neutral and what that means is they want the present political condition to stay to stand. right and that that means they're taking sides with the Iraqi government so the question is how hard are the Serbs or the Kurds going to fight yeah and yeah. will this thing can continue spreading from there there's already a movement in Iran for the Kurds in Iran to split off Right. That's already started. Right. So um, we're, you know, I mean, as we talk right here, I mean, we're right on the brink of something that that could be, um, you know, who knows, the biggest thing since World War II. All right. I'd like to tell my listeners that uh, Rick not only has this this tremendous knowledge of history and his uh, his ability to tie it into current events, but also provides some very practical advice for his subscribers uh, in the way uh, how to invest, given the possibilities of things like this. Rick, you, I think in your newsletter, you're suggesting that, you know, we, we're not wishing for this by any means, but it could happen that we would see a shortage of oil in the world's uh, in the world scene, and that could cause the price of oil to dry to rise dramatically and you gave one uh, the name of one company eog resources you're suggesting could be a pretty good place to have some money parked in the event that this happens could you tell us why the eog is a north american company and um, it's um, the name of the company is eog resources the symbol is eog and because they're in north america they are you know very well separated from the chaos it's likely to break out over the there in the old world um, in in the Mideast and surrounding areas. So uh, any company that you can get that is uh, distant from the, uh, the oil fields of, of uh, that part of the world is likely to benefit from this. And EOG is a very high quality company. It's a good buy even if the war doesn't actually break out, mm-hmm. uh, EOG is still a good long-term buy, in my opinion. So yeah, it trades in the New York Stock Exchange. Very solid company. It's around 97 bucks recently when I looked at it, so it's certainly not a penny stock, the kind that many of my listeners might be used to buying. But you're buying quality, yeah. and this would make a lot of sense, uh, I think, Rick. That's good advice. Yeah. You know, also, I want to have to ask you about, you're one of the few sort of Austrian economic thinkers that pays a lot of attention to monetary volume. Velocity, and you actually every month provide your sense of where velocity is. That is, when people lose confidence in their currency and their government, they tend to get rid of the paper currency, the fraudulent paper currency, I might add, because there's nothing really behind it. And then they, they, they buy stuff, they buy tangibles, things that retain their value. Well, oil, gold, things like that can rise very dramatically. What is your sense now, Rick, in terms of, in, in terms of that? Do you think... Do you think we could be at the start of a of an inflationary episode? It's not something that we want by any means, but I can tell you that I, I chart something called my inflation deflation watch, and it looks like it's breaking out at this point in time. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a, um, an observation that a lot of people are beginning to make, that <clears throat> prices, well, The Economist magazine ran an article last week, I think it was, where they talked about the rising price of everything. They used the word everything. 
and you know goods, services, stocks, uh, whatever, uh, raw materials, um, anything that can't be created on a printing press like government currency can, is going up. Uh, and so what's really happening is not really that these assets are going up. It's that the uh, money is going down because there's so much of it that governments have printed over the last 10 years. Now, the reason that, that this, these trillions and trillions of dollars haven't already triggered off a runaway inflation is that they were pumped into the economy at a time when everybody was just really scared. And people, um, you know, mo most people were very reluctant to to. Uh, spend whatever it is they got their hands on, and a whole lot of those trillions of dollars were saved. Um, and it was it had the effect of, of by being saved, they're not being used in transactions, and uh, the money was essentially buried, and it wasn't part of the economy. Now it's coming out, and that's what velocity is all about: is how uh, how fast money changes hands, and it's starting to change hands now and affect prices. In every country, um, there's so much of it, not just U.S. dollars, but all currencies. All governments have printed so much of it in the last 10 years that it's, uh, you know, when it all comes out, boy, look out, Katie, bar the door. And one of the, uh, or two, let's say, well, precious, let's take precious metals totally, uh, mm -hmm. gold, silver, platinum, palladium. All four of them are likely to just go wild if this thing really does take off, which it, it has the potential to. And you add that back with what's going on in the Mideast with right. the Kurds. Right. Oh, my gosh. So there's no, there's no um, guarantee on any of this. You know, we could be wrong about both sides of this, but um, it really is shaping up to be, in my opinion, a, a very likely that we're at the early stages of a major boom in the precious metal. Well, it could very well be, and, and you know, this is not something that you or I or any sane person wishes for, but we want to prepare ourselves for an inflationary event, we also for uh, to be prepared for, you know, bad things happen in this world, and wars are ongoing, an ongoing occurrence, and Rick, we don't have time to talk about it today. There were two topics I wanted to get to, but, you know, you're... People listening to this could subscribe to your newsletter and learn about it because I believe you're addressing both of it, both of those next week. One has to do with the H bomb and the significance of that in terms of proliferation of, of nuclear weapons. Very, very serious topic. And, and the other one I uh, wanted to point out that you have done extremely well with defense stocks over a period of time. It's not that you're interested in helping to support companies that kill people, for sure. I know you personally, and you're not that way, but it is what it is, and we're all forced to contribute to the empire through our taxes and so forth. So, I, I mean, it's a matter of self-preservation. It's a matter of doing what's right and protecting yourself and your family and so on and so forth. So we're, we're really out of time, Rick. It always goes so fast with you. But I would just tell my listeners, earlywarningreport.com, yeah. sign up for Rick's letter. And I we, we do have a special uh, reduced price offer on the website right now. Okay, well, wonderful. I, I, I just, you know, it's a reasonably priced letter, very inexpensive letter. Folks, do yourself a favor, do your family a favor, help to protect them because Rick has I mean I I don't want to sound like I'm hyping this because I'm just telling you what I believe Rick uh, and his work is just his his understanding of history you know they don't teach history in school anymore they teach a revisionist mantra that is totally false in many cases read Rick Mayberry's letter early warning report and you can't go wrong thanks so much for being with us always wonderful to have you with us and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime very soon well folks that is all the time we have for this week uh, next week my guest will be John Rubino Robert Carrington of New Range Gold and Michael Oliver. Until then, goodbye. God's blessings to you. 
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.